Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Kenneth LaProd lives in El Paso, Texas, on the border between the United States and Mexico. His wife is Mexican, and many of the folks in his house church are from Mexico. In such a context, immigration is always a touchy subject. But lately, some Christians have baptized certain political rhetoric and presented it as the Christian position on this complicated issue. Laprade sees this as merely one aspect of the much larger problem of Christians trying to take power in America, as if establishing God's kingdom here, now. In this interview, he urges us to retain the Bible's teaching about the future kingdom and see ourselves as Christians first and Americans or Mexicans second. Here now is Interview 42, Christian Solidarity versus Polarizing Politics, with Kenneth Laprade. All right. Well, Ken, thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're you're welcome, Sean. Thank you for joining me in this interview. Recently, you've been reading The Coming Kingdom by Andrew Woods. The uh, I noticed the full title of that book is The Coming Kingdom, colon, What is the Kingdom and How is Kingdom Now Theology Changing the Focus of the Church? Question mark. Right. Uh, which is a Pretty impressive title, uh, very <laughs> descriptive. I appreciate that. Uh, but uh, what have you what have you got from this book, and what is this? What is he even talking about as far as kingdom now living? Right, right. It actually motivated me to go review some materials that I had previously studied about this same subject. But the title and the beginning just point to me that that this obsession with getting results in this world and this world's present structures and systems can be a tremendous distraction from seeing God's future kingdom for what it is and the great priority to live now in preparation for that coming kingdom of God. Okay. Well, we'll just lay out briefly for us. What it, so what is your view on the kingdom as far as uh, the future aspect and then what is an example of this distraction of the kingdom now mind, mindset? The future kingdom, of course, you know, involves Jesus's announcement of repent in light of the coming kingdom of God, a very consistent theme in the Gospels, which has its roots in Old Testament prophecies, like the prophecy of the giant statue, the image in Daniel chapter 2, and that future view of what is hinted at in, you know, throughout all the prophets, that there is a day when God is going to make things right mm-hmm. uh, on this creation where he planned for things to, to be under his rule all along. But that day will actually arrive, and to be invited to participate in that is to respond the way that Jesus taught us to respond in the Gospels, because it's of such powerful significance that the things of this world, the ups and downs, being comfortable about a situation, being uncomfortable about a situation, are ultimately of very little consequence compared to 
that glorious manifestation of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. I see. So uh, what's, what's the danger with the kingdom now approach? That's the thing. I, I think the distraction can be to fixate on, you know, getting our way in, in certain senses uh, in the present time in a, in a way that is not helpful to stay focused on the coming kingdom and might in fact be such a, a major distraction so as to hurt, you know, people's commitment to the coming kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. If people get too obsessed about obtaining results in the here and now and Christianizing things that really aren't Christian in order to do that. Mm-hmm. We're going to jump into talking about how Christians engage with political issues and mm-hmm. have political discourse. What would you say is the proper Christian posture toward politics? And, and well, obviously speaking as Americans as well. Right, right. In the American scenario, it's interesting to me, I, I've used a parallel that uh, in the first century, for example, you know, the people of the first century Christian church during the time of the book of Acts and, and thereafter, you don't see a big discussion about their concern about what was corrupt about Tiberius or about Claudius or Caligula or, or Nero. In fact, uh, you know, Romans 13 might have been written at a time when Nero was the emperor of Rome, as far as we know. And uh, where Christian obedience has to do with God having allowed certain things to be in place in a certain way in the meanwhile, as we await his coming kingdom. So to submit, it talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2 also, to submit to ruling authorities is, for the most part, appropriate. Paying taxes, giving honor, just like uh, you know, here in America, I would encourage people to obey the traffic laws, to pay their taxes. Uh, you know, the differences come in where if a perverse, out-of-bounds law requires people to disobey God, then there would be other considerations mm-hmm. uh, to, that would take place. But for the most part, you know, I can pay my taxes, I can obey speed limits, I can, uh, you know, go to the workplace, I can behave ethically and treat other people, and not be forced to do anything unethical by the prevailing laws, for the most part. I I believe that's true. So I would uh, encourage that. But I would encourage people not to think that Christianity means taking the reins of power. In America or another nation has been has has been attempted for centuries now, and then used to coercively submit everyone in society to a norm that might or might not have certain Christian influences to it, certain Christian ethics to it, but in the coercive pattern that you see so often in in modern America, and has been going on for quite a while. Yeah, that reminds me of First Timothy two. In addition to the text you mentioned there, Romans thirteen and First Peter, First Timothy two one says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the text that you refer to, both the one in First uh, Peter and Romans as well, talk about submitting 
to the powers that be and honoring the king or honoring the emperor or the president or the prime minister, whatever, right. the leader. And this one is uh, a little more active in the sense that it's calling us to pray for them. But it, what I find so interesting about this text uh, is that it's essentially praying that they leave us alone. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it says, verse two, pray for all kings who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So the prayer is not for them to succeed or have God's blessing or to win their wars that they're always fighting, but instead <laughs> it's praying for them to leave us alone so that we can have, we can have peace and, and quiet and be dignified. It's hard to be dignified if society's crumbling all around you. That's for sure. So right. it's, not, it's not that the Bible's against governments, uh, but it recognizes that they're in a certain realm that, you know, God is managing to some degree. Right. Uh, but uh, our role as Christ followers is to submit, is to pray for peace and to retain our own witness. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. No, very good point. Very good point. It, you know, that is the focus of that prayer that, you know, we be allowed, uh, despite the turbulence of this world, despite the fact that the Bible does talk about the demonic aspect of how nations are ruled in the, in the present evil age, that God has allowed that, uh, and God makes provisions for us as we're faithful in prayer and faithful to, to be examples, to, to have godly, uh, pious lifestyles that can be an example and be an open door to to work for his kingdom, despite the inconveniences and the headaches of, of this present evil age. Yeah. Now, what about this passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says we're supposed to be salt and light? Uh, I've heard a lot of folks over the years from many different backgrounds teach that the purpose of the church is to preserve the world and that if Christians aren't engaged in politics and in the governments all around the world, then the, the whole world is just going to fall apart and uh, persecute us or something like that. What, what right. would you say to that vein of reasoning? I would say that that's an, a tremendous imbalance about the nature of God's coming kingdom and what it's really about. Because the, the, the prophecies collectively that speak of future times do indicate the world needing to be rescued from perilous situations that get worse and worse over the years in certain senses. They'll certainly get, be getting worse and worse at the times of that last seven-year block of time. So to uh, try to preserve this world in order not to get persecuted I don't really see that as a, a Christian priority. In fact, uh, I see that people could get hooked into that to where they end up being the persecutors, as has happened when Christians get the upper hand and Augustine certainly politics, and they end up being the persecutors out of their their fear, their defensiveness of not getting persecuted for their faith. And so um, it's pr that's pretty ironic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's sort of like the uh, the doctrine we see a lot with foreign policy in America. There's a, this incredible fear left over from Pearl Harbor that mm -hmm. uh, unless America squashes any potential overseas, then who knows if uh, the battle could come back to the homeland again. So uh, better better to fight over there in somebody else's backyard than in your own backyard. Uh, it seems like a similar reasoning pattern. I, I don't 
I don't pretend to know how effective that strategy has been. Uh, but it does, it does appear that people do not like America in a lot of parts of the world because of that policy. But, uh, you know, I, I always kind of feel out of depth discussing American politics anyhow, just because, or policies, just because I run my life by a whole different set of principles. And I, I can't a lot of times pretend to even say or advise some non-Christian or some secular person or some Muslim person, like how they should do things. I mean, I think they should become a Christian, but if they're not, then they're not playing by the rules of Jesus, you know? Uh, So it is always a difficult conversation to have on particular issues, but let's, let's uh, back up a second and talk about your own unique perspective. You Mm -hmm. live in El Paso on the border of Juarez, Mexico. You are married to an immigrant. Right. And you yourself have had uh, an immigrant experience. You lived in Mexico for some time, right? That's true. Yeah. And, uh, and you've also been to Spain. How is it in your own ministry and in, in your own house church and the fellowships that you're involved with? This whole issue of immigration that's such a hot button topic of discussion today. How is that playing out? And, and once again, it's a matter of... Uh disclaimer, so to speak, I'm not, when I mention politicians and political issues, I'm not either endorsing or condemning the politicians themselves, but I am very concerned about Christian response of what it means to be in this world, but not of this world in this context of the kingdom of God versus the establishing and maintaining of earthly kingdoms. But, um, For example, in in our situation here, a couple of years ago, a person who used to come to our fellowship meetings, just to use a concrete example, who I haven't really seen for six or seven years, but uh, a young lady was very careful to send her political ideas to my sons. They received uh, these communications and very overflowing, over-the-top communications endorsing who was then candidate Trump you know, right after he had made some very caustic comments about immigrants, Mexican immigrants. Building the wall. Building the wall rhetoric and all, all of that. And uh, so this person was endorsing, uh, as, as a Christian minister, she thinks of herself as a Christian minister, endorsing candidate Trump uh, as someone comparable to King David. Uh, now, I, I know a little bit about King David and his priorities <laughs> and his errors from the Bible. If, if there are any present uh, political candidates or presidents or governors or senators or anyone in office who really thinks and is focused on the issues of God as King David was, I, I just don't know about it. Nevertheless, to compare in the context of comparing this man, you know, right in the face of speaking evil uh, about immigrants or things that are demeaning. Could you be more specific? I mean, what, what exactly? Saying that, um, you know, the building the wall is a priority to keep out uh, these Mexican immigrants who are basically rapists. To characterize Mexican immigrants or undocumented Mexican immigrants as rapists. And then later on, uh, this you know, young same young lady came out and said that well, it's good and well that he called these people rapists because they are raping our economy. 
anyway, so, you know, she changes it to a, a metaphor. But, you know, for those of us who are from immigrant families, nothing sounds very Christian about that. It sounds like a tremendous blurring of the lines between the civic religion of America with all its Christian rhetoric and the true Christianity of the kingdom of God perspective of the Bible. To me, right. it, it just represents that. And it does it in such a way that has been so true of much of evangelical Christianity over the decades is that it kind of puts up a barrier of in your face, well, you agree to my point of view on this, or you are rejected as a non-Christian or an anti-American or, or whatever, for not going along with this particular posturing. Now, meanwhile, my, you know, my wife is an immigrant. We have people involved in our home fellowships here who are immigrants who have worked hard who have spent tens of thousands of dollars over the years, who are not rich people by any means, just to uh, try to legally acquire an immigrant status, work in America without uh, undue headaches over these issues. I've known other people who uh, came into America on temporary visas, who then tried to go through the process of getting those things extended. They got ripped off by lawyers. There's some very complex, difficult hoops to jump through to move from one of these, uh, say, third world countries or poorer countries, such as Mexico or Central America or South America, to enter America. And uh, I, I know that there are people who lined up by the thousands, if not more, just to try to gain legal entry into the United States, despite very difficult uh, obstacles. So uh, it's just interesting to see, you know, people are trying so hard uh, then on top of all these other things to have these demeaning insults mentioned as if they, these are Christian perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems to me what you're saying here is you're concerned about your focus is not so much on the issue or mm -hmm. the policy or right. the current president. You're really exasperated with the Christian rhetoric about the policy christians stamping a particular policy as the christian perspective on it that right. hey if you're if you're a real christian then you agree with this this current policy there's room to do that to some degree uh -huh. but uh at the same time there's not what, what i hear you saying is there's not a recognition that some of these very people who would be harmed by the policy are Christian brothers and sisters themselves. Exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? It's almost like you're concerned about putting nationalism in conflict with our faith. Right, right. And if, you know, if somebody, doesn't matter if they're living in Mexico or some other country, if they're a Christ follower, then they're a brother or sister. Exactly, yeah. Is that what your, your concern is, or are you are you more just like focused on the the policy itself that it's unjust yeah the the policy itself i'm you know i'm used to how american government and mexican government go back and forth on different policies and certain things seem to work and some ideas seem to be better or more workable than other ideas and the ups and downs of you know the policies of nations isn't my main concern now, having said that, I, I agree with you that 
yeah, there could be a, a good venue for expressing social issues uh, to talk about abortion, to talk about, right. now, I don't think I can influence people other than to counsel individuals about, you know, the choices that they might make as repentant Christians in lieu of the coming kingdom of God. Uh, nevertheless, to, to have a dialogue about it, to, to have an influence in America, to reverse uh, what to me seems like just an over-the-top devilish policy of abortions on demand at any stage, under any circumstances, that has killed over 60 million unborn babies wow. over the last four and a half decades. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, to call attention to that and discuss it. Now, nevertheless, having said that, I'm not angry at anybody for not having been successful in the government at reversing that sort of policy, uh, because that's not my priority. Once again, my priority is how should we be on board on the same page as, as Christians uh, regarding what's, what's truth and what's honest, uh, what's loving. You know, I, I would just say I, I came out of a background of endorsing this pro-Americanism, you know, from the 70s, the early 70s, when I became a young Christian. And I was indoctrinated into thinking that Christianity had a lot to do with pro-Americanism. It had a lot to do with free enterprise and capitalism versus more socialistic uh, approaches to government. Right. Well, that was the big concern in the 70s and the 80s was yeah. the USSR and communism. Exactly. So I got indoctrinated into that way of thinking. And part of that uh, way of thinking involved Christianizing the roots of America as if it were founded by, you know, godly people persecuted in Europe who came to America and set up uh, a country devoted to freedom of religion uh, under Christian ideas. You know, one of the books that I read, uh, you know, about 35 years ago that I, I more recently reread, it's called The Light and the Glory by Peter Marshall and David Manuel. But that type of uh, thinking, it's a book that's refuted quite well by uh, Gregory Boyd's book, The Myth of a Christian Nation, and also David Berceau's book, In God We Don't Trust. They refute some of the, you know, the bad scholarship and uh, the light and the glory. But this whole movement of Christianizing the roots of America in modern times really started in the 1930s by businessmen who were afraid of FDR's socialization of uh, America under the New Deal. Oh, wow. And that built into the anti-communist scare in the 50s with Billy Graham's ministry. But it started as a, a corporate thing out of a group called the, um, I'm forgetting the name of it now, I've got it jotted down here somewhere, but a corporate thing that found ministers to preach the free enterprise gospel as if that's essentially what Christ is all about. It's free enterprise it's capitalism, anti-union, anti-socialist, and then, you know, anti-Soviet-style communism by the 1950s, built into the movements to put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954, and to print, in God we trust on the money, and to have the a whole network of prayer breakfasts where big-time politicians and uh, CEOs and big-time businessmen would get together 
and have prayer and Bible lessons uh, together with meals. And then, uh, you know, keynote speakers like Billy Graham would be involved. Since I'm mentioning this, you know, this thing did start in the 1930s, a movement known as Christian libertarianism. But it was basically a, a rebuttal to FDR's uh, New Deal, as I mentioned. One thing that FDR did was to quote the Bible frequently in his fireside chats, in his radio broadcast to the public, to say, look, we're doing what the Bible says about collectively taking care of one another as part of the, the New Deal. So to refute this, uh, a certain pastor, a congregational pastor at a large church in Los Angeles named James V. Fifield was enlisted to speak in terms of uh, defending free enterprise with the Bible, using the Bible to counteract FDR's use of the Bible. And so uh, this guy, he got uh, invited to a major corporate association. It's called the National Association of Manufacturers, NAM. So by 1940, these meetings and propaganda were being published really profusely uh, throughout the uh, World War II years to counteract what was still going on as considered too liberal by these social conservatives. Now this minister was what you'd call a liberal pastor as far as Bible theology, but conservative as far as this pro-Americanism social idea of capitalism and free enterprise. And then uh, another minister was named, a Methodist named Abraham Berede got involved in the movement. And Billy Graham was really kind of the successor to these two guys who had the ball rolling since the mid-30s throughout the 40s. By the late 40s, the Red Scare had started when the Soviet Union had the bomb. So it became a kind of a thing. Are you if you're all together with us, you're very pro-capitalist. If you're not with us, you must be a communist. Mm -hmm. If you have any type of social agenda that doesn't look like our view of free enterprise and capitalism, you must be of the enemy. And that only got exacerbated with, you know, ironically with Richard Nixon and then uh, throughout the 80s with Ronald Reagan, you know, despite the fallacies of these things, this whole movement with Jerry Falwell and his contribution, a guy named Buchanan, uh, other preachers, you know, but it became a very in-your-face movement that, you know, Christianity is about coercing you to think like we think. If you don't think this way, you're anti-American. Furthermore, you're not a Christian, even if you say you are, if you're a so-called liberal Christian, you're not a real Christian. And that kind of thing got, you know, has been very contentious for for decades, it really hasn't lessened in, in our new millennium here. No, no. So it's a lot with this uh, economics overall mm -hmm. policy. It's interesting because either system is not really justifiable from the Bible. I mean, the, the sort of system we saw under Israel in the Old Testament is capitalistic in that you did have private ownership of property, but much more communal in that it was very family-oriented and... Right. Uh, almost more like feudal in that a family controlled a particular tract of land for generation after generation. And every so many years it would be reset. 
by the government and get it redistributed back to the family who originally had lived there. I mean, it's a very different kind of system than right. our modern ones. But um, I know plenty of uh, Christians who believe that capitalism is the best for uh, the country. And I know plenty that, maybe not plenty, but I know several that also that practice communism and they live in a community and they have a common purse and they, they share all things. And uh, they, they also claim that they're the more Christian option. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't have private ownership. You'd be like the book of Acts. It seems like what you're saying is you've got different systems, but neither of these systems or whatever political regime you happen to find yourself living within defines who you are as a Christian, that Christianity is almost like on a different axis altogether, mathematically speaking. You've got private ownership and public ownership and different systems along that path as far as capitalism, libertarianism, communism, socialism, and that Christianity is just a totally different kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what we're saying. Because of its focus on a future theocracy, you might say, where nothing will be done with defective insights, the Messiah's rule will not be according to the limitations of what people see with their eyes or people hear with their ears, but by the spirit of, of Yahweh him, himself with you know, true righteous judgments, you know, we're to embrace that hope. And, you know, at the present time, uh, you know, I think of how the Apostle Paul, he was not interested in abolishing slavery in the first century. If you're a, a slave, if you're a household servant, a bond slave of some sort, well, use it to honor God. If you can get your freedom, great. Don't go back into slavery. That was not the priority. Our social status, our social standing, like during the times of the Roman Empire, the whole idea was not to reform any type of government policies of the Roman Empire. But even if the Christians got persecuted, it was to stay on track for the future rule of the kingdom of God. That's, right. So you're that's saying motivation. Yeah. the focus is always really on that future hope and how that affects how we live now. And two things come to mind. One is our own personal righteousness and doing what God asks us to do. But then there's also the spread of the message to others. And it's that in particular of evangelistic element that yeah. also concerns me when it comes to when Christians take strong political views, especially on social media and especially in mixed company with people who come from different perspectives. You know, if somebody gets offended because of Christ or yeah. if somebody's offended because of something the Bible says, I understand that. And I, I, don't, I don't feel guilty about that. I mean, it's unfortunate. Right. But I don't feel uh, personally responsible. Now, if they're offended because I said some insensitive thing about a political candidate who I only agree with 30% of <laughs> his or her views, and now this person doesn't want to talk to me again because they've put, just put me in this box of X's over here, whether you want to call me right. a Republican or a Democrat or Libertarian or whatever, that's something that I would feel ashamed of that I've just put my own opinion, my own personal opinion of how I think a kingdom of this world should run yeah. over my opportunity and ability to share the gospel with somebody effectively. Right. Priority is it's such a key term. If our priority is the coming kingdom of God and living in light of it, 
we, we have enough on our plate without getting overly intertwined with the policies and the dogfights of the kingdoms of this world. We have enough to, to stay on track, to, to be faithful, to be loving and speech and thinking, words and actions, prayers. That's enough. You know, I'm, I'm content with my involvement in American politics to pray for the president, pray for the uh, senators, the House of Representatives, governors, mayors, uh, other people at other levels of society, and to do my best to be a good example and speak about the scriptures as, as God gives me utterance. You know, I've got yeah. enough on my plate with that. Yeah. And I, I think we, as, as leaders and, and teachers of the Bible, we do need to take moral stands. Yeah. The Bible clearly takes a moral stand. Like you mentioned abortion before. Mm-hmm. I, I think as far as immigration goes, there is, there is a biblical position on that subject drawn from sojourner passages in the Old Testament and right. showing hospitality in the New Testament. But it's not going to be the same as the way this government packages it and it's not going to deal with certain other issues like illegal immigrants versus legal immigrants and um you know so that would be a a more nuanced conversation but what we want to do here is be careful to hold the line between what the bible teaches and then what our own personal opinion is about whatever political issue i want to read out this quote that you sent in an email it says We as 21st century Christians do not help anyone by being seduced into speaking for one side or another of two or more warring camps of Gentile hate mongers who are ruled (laughs) in typically corrupt Gentile fashion. Mm -hmm. That line there, Ken, uh, it really expresses a certain separation Mm -hmm. between the church and the state and the, uh, well, really the church and the world, that you have the body of Christ and there is a, a clear separation there, and you use the word Gentile to do that. And it's like, well, look, these are all, all various kingdoms of this world. Some of them are better than others. Mm-hmm. None of them is going to be perfect, but that's not who we are. And, and we don't want to give in to the vitriol and the polarization right? that right. is so endemic in our time. You go on to say, Christian pop culture labels pasted on political and social movements do not Christianize blatant disregard for Jesus himself. Neither do they cover for outright demonic evil, whether from the left or from the right. We'd be better off suffering now for obeying him rather than getting bamboozled by a pseudo-Christian with no future kingdom focus bandwagon to get our way now as if entitled by an American idol. Mm -hmm. That's that's a good line. (laughs) That's a good line. What you're saying here is that our primary allegiance is to Jesus. It's not to the Republicans and the Democrats or whatever other party is out there is, is to Jesus. And it's like, it's not that you, you can't vote or participate in some way, but you just can't get swallowed up with it and you can't allow it to become your primary identity. Um, Now, what would you say about patriotism? Is, is it your thought that patriotism is, is itself bad or sinful or that there is a place for it? Once again, I think it has to do with balance and degrees. I can say that I'm lovingly appreciative of being a citizen of the United States. I will use that when uh, it's not in conflict with my higher citizenship, which has to do with uh, an identity with the returning Messiah. 
because, um, you know, like, like the Apostle Paul, he used his citizenship when, uh, and a couple of times, one before he got whipped, one after he got whipped in, in the book of Acts, to say, now wait just a second, I'm a Roman citizen. So I, I can see that to ha- use his worldly rights, you might say, uh, in a certain way at a certain time made sense. And it was good. It was not in conflict with this commitment uh, to, to live for God, even if he suffered. Nevertheless, it, could, it can so easily get out of balance. It can so easily get out of bounds. Because as you said, like the family of God is an international body. I should be just as concerned about how Mexican laborers who are fellow Christians are treated in Mexico by their governors and mayors and heads of state as how you know people are treated in America or how people are treated in, in a European nation or in an African nation or in South America. The body of Christ is an international reality. So as I pray for the body of Christ, it's in light of you know these people, the, the struggles might look different in an Arabian country in the Middle East than uh, you know a South American country. But my, I don't have to necessarily know all the details. I, I couldn't know all the details of what the struggles might look like in every corner of the world. But to have an empathy uh, with the fact that a very large segment of the body of Christ outside of the United States of America, they struggle with uh, trusting God for daily bread needs in a way that might seem uh, like something easy to take for granted uh, here in the United States of America. Yeah. Let me ask you about that conflict there, because I, I think there is a genuine conflict, because on the one hand, we, we do have compassion on our brothers and sisters in less fortunate circumstances, uh, yeah. especially in other countries. And in scripture, it says that we are to show hospitality. And uh, there's even actually one Old Testament text, which uh, in the antebellum South, they did, <laughs> I don't think they did much reading, but it, it's where a runaway slave comes to you. You're supposed to protect that person. Yeah. That's what the Old Testament teaches and not return him or her to their master. So you have that on the one side, and then on the other side, we're supposed to follow the laws of the land, you yeah. know? And uh, so I make personally a strong distinction between immigrants and illegal immigrants. If somebody illegally crosses a border, right? and I'm not talking about a refugee where their life is in danger. I think that's a separate category. Okay. Yeah. You have an illegal immigrant coming in, looking for a better life, mm-hmm. and then they get arrested and sent back. Yeah. I mean, to me, I can, I can be compassionate to the fact that their options are probably very limited back home, but they're still right. breaking the law. And as a Christian, I wouldn't be able to justify that myself. Right. right? right. I'm supposed to follow the laws of the land. So like, how do you, how do you reason that out? Yeah. I, you know, I would not encourage anybody to, to break the law, to cross the border, enter this country if people have broken that law and get caught to accept reasonable, just consequences, I think it's, it's totally appropriate. To, if they're, they're going to be deported, they're going to be deported. If they uh, end up being Christians or becoming Christians, I can encourage them to, within that context to, to trust God, to have their needs provided in their own country, which is a real viable option for a lot of people. Once again. By saying this, though, there are, there are lots of people 
who come to America under desperate situations, or they cro when they cross the border, they have crossed legally, but then their visas run out and the process to get visa renewal and stuff like that has been so complex that it's gone over their heads. So they haven't bothered with it. They've gone ahead and stayed here. I would um, encourage other people to have at least this amount of compassion, to not view them as deliberate lawbreakers in the same sense as somebody who commits uh, a crime against victims, a crime against persons. For example, statistically speaking, a person who has crossed illegally or an undocumented worker, let's say, from outside the United States, is two-thirds less likely to commit a misdemeanor or a felony than somebody actually born and raised in the United States. That's not because they're better people, it's because they, they want to be careful, they want to avoid being deported. But to demonize them as a group as, okay, all these, let's say, several million people, they oh, are- They're all drug runners and rapists. Right, exactly, yeah. To demonize them in that way, and then to act like America, this is a great threat to America's economy and all that, that's an over-the-top political rhetoric that I just don't see. I remember being asked once by a fellow minister who lives- couple of thousand miles from the Mexican border if by living there, if I, I was exposed to a lot of danger from illegal, undocumented workers coming into America. And because this person, a couple of thousand miles away, that's the type of rhetoric he had heard from, you know, probably political pundits and, and, and people like that. And I said, I've never had a, in 35 or more years living in this area, I've never had a single situation danger because of either or an economic threat or some sort of physical violence type of danger from somebody crossing the border. So I, I would just encourage people to take it in bounds and take it for what it is, you know, a very Mexican point of view that most U.S. citizens would not understand is that 90 something percent of Mexican immigration into the southwest part of the U.S., that's, that's where it is, is into an area that once belonged to Mexico <laughs> and was taken from Mexico under dubious means about 170 years ago. Now, you can say that's a, well, that's a history of a long time ago, but it's still part of the consciousness of people who freely moved from the areas of California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, there was no border and no border enforcement for a long time, even after it got transferred, uh, you know, from the U.S. to Mexico. There's a whole, in other words, there's a whole history behind it that I don't think the current crisis is understood all that well if people ignore that, oh, there's a history of conflict here that at the same time the West was being taken away from Native Americans 55% of Mexico was effectively stolen from, from Mexico, not sold by Mexico by choice, but stolen from Mexico uh, because of the Mexican-American War uh, in the James Polk administration in the 1840s. Now, I'm not saying that people, that gives people a right to be mad about, you know, all these abuses in American history. Yeah. But this, it, it's, it is another illustration that this Christianized view of what America was doing under manifest destiny 
in moving from sea to shining sea was very brutal and uh, very demeaning to uh, some people who were inhabiting those lands beforehand. You remind me of a uh, standard evangelical position on uh-huh. Israel is that they should have all of the land that Palestine, the Palestinians occupy uh, because 2,000 years ago, they had all of the land and, you know, they lost it and, you know, so it's theirs. Right, right. Here in this case, this is only 170 years ago and the Mexicans lost the land, but the very same people that would support Israel right or wrong are going to oppose Mexico right or wrong. Uh, right. There seems to be a little bit of an inconsistency there. Um, <laughs> but as far as the Christian mindset of following the laws of the land go, I mean, yeah. if I'm a Mexican and I want to I wanna look, look for a better life for myself in, a, in America, Canada, in a European nation, whatever, then I need to follow what the laws of the land are. And if my life's in danger, yeah. If I'm facing perilous circumstances where I'm either going to starve to death or be killed for some right. sort of political reason, to me now that is a whole other category called a refugee. A refugee is not just an immigrant, but an immigrant who cannot return home safely. Yeah. Um, uh, or when they arrive home, their, their life is going to be in danger, which could be from a famine or it could be from a war or right. from any number of other situations, a plague. America does welcome refugees. It has throughout its history, but not that many. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, it, it, as it turns out here in Albany, where I, I live, uh, it's one of the refugee centers uh-huh. uh, for the state of New York because they don't, they don't like to keep refugees in New York City because the housing is so expensive. So they mm-hmm. ship them up here to where I live, three hours north. And right. uh, so we have something like 4,000 refugees from a number of countries, quite a few of them are Christians. Quite a few of them are from Burma, uh, which is where Christians were persecuted and and had to go to refugee camps in Thailand. Quite a few of them are from the Congo countries, especially the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the eastern portion. And these people are, many of them are Christians uh, to some degree. This whole idea of uh, nationalism, you know, if, if, if they're, you know, we see this racism rearing its ugly head again in this country if you're if you're not white then you're not really you know one of us americans uh it's just not a christian point of view if you have that kingdom focus that you've been advocating here we see a revelation 5 9 and 10 that uh there's a song to the lamb that goes worthy are you to open the seals because you purchase with your blood men from every tribe language and nation and have made it to be a kingdom of priests and they will reign upon the earth so there's this Vision, it's a very much a Martin Luther King Jr. vision of black and white and different races all joining in together in the age to come. Right. And Christians, we were really the pioneers of diversity. Right. In uh-huh. Even the first century, we have the Ethiopian coming into the church. I mean, he went back to Ethiopia, but then we let the Italians in with Cornelius. Right. And uh, in Antioch, all kinds of Gentiles came into the faith. I mean, it was really, we were cutting edge as far as diversity and, and transcending national and citizenship lines as far as right. our hearts go and, and our finances. You have all these churches out 
West, uh, like Philippi, and they're sending money to these Jews in Jerusalem. Right. You know, it's just a, a world away. And yet that, yeah. that bond of brotherhood and fraternity is strong. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have to follow the laws of the land that we're, of the country we're in unless they directly conflict with Scripture. But exactly. having said that, our heart should be for the body of Christ throughout the world, not just those who look like us or think like us or like our sports teams, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. So any other concluding thoughts on this subject? I mean, what would you like to see people do as a result of changing this mindset? Yeah. Um, how would yeah. we act differently? From a scriptural point of view, one of my concerns, like it talks about several times in the book of Proverbs, that he who justifies the wicked or the guilty and he who condemns the righteous or the innocent, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. And just because I might agree with an issue or two pronounced by some public figure, I don't want to lend my agreement to this person in such a way that I'm justifying him by exalting him and saying, well, he's like another King David, when he might not even be, he's, he's just really another pagan Gentile ruler over a pagan Gentile nation. Because then you get into a slippery slope. Then to justify your statement, you might in fact be condemning people for simply being immigrants, like we've talked about, because they are on the hit list of this particular political figure, for example, in the case of uh, rhetoric about immigration. In other Proverbs, it says it is not good, which is kind of an understatement, uh, to mean it is terrible to show partiality to the wicked or the guilty, or to deprive a righteous man of justice. But I think it would be easy to be deceived into falling into being guilty of these things by not distinguishing between true kingdom of God Christianity and that which professes itself as a Christian label on an, a nation like America or perhaps some other nation because of the mythology of Christian origins and Christian roots and all these things that can be documented as being false. I would say that that would be something to be wary of. If you get too excited about the wrong things, then you might end up inadvertently justifying or praising the wicked, and God would find that quite hateful. <laughs> right, right. And once again, I come out of a background of having done that when I was all gung-ho about Christian America in the 70s and 80s. As an, it's funny, in the early 70s, as an atheist teenager, uh, I was very anti-American. I was part of a group where we were, uh, you know, watching films of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and exalting them as heroes. Mm -hmm. Then later, I became a gun-ho Christian. And even though I have some consternation about why people are supportive of Richard Nixon at, th at that time as a young Christian, I eventually gave in to the flow of exalting people like Ronald Reagan and things like that, uh, although he was practicing astrology while in the White House, uh, because of, you know, getting on this bandwagon. Then I started having doubts about it, and I'm, I'm thankful. You gave me uh, a copy of a book years ago, uh, The Myth of the Christian Nation, which uh, made a, a strong impact yeah. on me at that time and gave me a good contrast with this old book called The Light and the Glory. I began to see the discrepancies in the old mythological story of America. Yeah. I would encourage people to, to read more 
you know, such books as, as we've mentioned here. Uh, another book, I think I've already mentioned it, is David Berceau's book on In God We Don't Trust. Yeah. Very good documentation about what was really going on at the time of the American Revolution. Yeah. I appreciate both of those books. And uh, just so everyone understands, both of those authors, uh, Gregory Boyd and David Berceau, are deeply committed Christians. Uh, these are not books written by some sort of like anti-American haters or anything like that. They're both citizens of the United States who just don't want to perpetuate the myth that there was a golden era that we need to get back to. I mean, one of the points Boyd makes is like, when was this golden era? Was it when we were slaughtering the Native Americans and lying to them and getting them drunk with rum that their culture had no concept of how to how to drink responsibly and getting them to sign papers that they didn't understand meant their land was now gone? Was it when we enslaved all these millions of Africans and forced them to basically work like animals? Is that when the, the golden age? Was it when we denied women the right to vote and treated them in a second class manner? I mean, in every in every era in this country, I'm sure other countries as well, there are some good things and some bad things. And right. just don't get Christianity all mixed up with it. I mean, they were Christians who came here. There's no question about it. Uh, but yeah. that doesn't mean that this is some sort of exceptional country that God has uniquely chosen, like ancient Israel, and that no matter what America does, that we should support it. We have to support what is godly and you know america does some wonderful things around the world especially when it comes to relief and when there's a disaster and it's the red cross that goes in more often than not and america has has really given the world some great things like computers and a lot of other uh, technology that has really improved the lives of countless people medical technologies that have been developed in this land that have lengthened people's lives and farming techniques and you know so there's there's lots of good uh but there's also lots of bad and you know we don't need to to jump into a anti-america or uh my country right or wrong nationalistic camp we're on this third axis our allegiance is to jesus the king and to his coming kingdom and in the meantime we ourselves are sojourners in this land and we want to seek the good of the land just like uh, sojourners are told in babylon in the ancient uh-huh. times, but at the same time, not to get sucked into local disputes that really are just going to alienate us from our brothers and sisters and destroy our chances of evangelism. So uh, I really appreciate you bringing this up. This is a hard topic for conversation. I'm sure I'll get lots of angry <laughs> criticisms, <laughs> but you know what? Hey, I'm not perfect, and I don't think you are either. So, you know, we're just trying to figure it out, you know, and uh, do so in a godly manner. And uh, so maybe somebody will come in with a comment that will totally reverse my view on this. Uh, I doubt it, but I'm willing to listen to it. So thanks so much for your time today, Ken. Okay, well, thank you, Sean. Thanks for tuning in. I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on this very important subject. If you would like to drop a comment whether agreeing or disagreeing, you can do that at restitutio.org and look for Interview 42, Christian Solidarity versus Polarizing Politics with Ken LaProd, and you'll be able to add your voice to the discussion. 
Also, I wanted to let you know in the show notes for this episode, I have LaProd's original statement on how Christians should orient themselves politically that he emailed to me and a, a number of others that was actually the inspiration for this interview. And I quoted from it a couple times, but I give you the whole thing in its entirety in the show notes if you want to read it. Also, if you want to get in touch with LaProd, his email address is ldc84jpm at yahoo.com, and the 84 are the numbers, ldc84jpm at yahoo.com. In addition, I interviewed him a while back, interview number 14 on his baptism journey, which you can check out if you're interested, and I have a link to a number of his articles that he has written for Living Hope's publication, uh, Glad Tidings, and links to three of the books mentioned in this interview as well. So check out the show notes for this episode. You can do that in your device or by coming on to reststudio.org, either one, and engage a little bit with this material. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.